you'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Second Corinthians chapter one. Let's pray. Father, in so many ways, it's just a great thing. It's a glorious thing for us people to gather together. And to worship you, to sing praises to your name, to magnify your name, to give you the glory and the honor that you so rightly deserve. A reminder to us, Lord, that we are the creature and that you are the creator and that we owe you our allegiance. And Father, in duty and in joy, we give that to you. We thank you, Father, that you have preserved your word through all of time, that we may possess it ourselves and that we may open it, that we may read it, that we may contemplate its meaning, that we may seek to apply it to the world in which we live. We ask, as always, that you would grant us, Father, understanding, along with the Father insight and also the great desire to apply your word, that we may think your thoughts after you. We know, Lord, from your word that you are with us. For that, we are grateful. And again, we thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings with with which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. As we've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, this thought here occurred to me as I read through this passage that one of the reasons that God has given to us that book, which at times seems to be very dark, is for this purpose, so that we can once again have an understanding of the heaviness and the darkness of the world, the suffering that is taking place, and again, the answer that is to be found in God. Let me reread a portion of this to you from the Uh, from a paraphrase, uh, just to kind of help us to think about it in terms of where we are living and how we are living now uh, in in the, the culture that we live in. It reads this way, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We are confident 
that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in the comfort God gives us. Over the past several weeks, we have been talking about the burdens that weigh man down every day, and we have gotten that from the passage that we were looking at in Ecclesiastes. And so we have taken some time to look at more detail about some of those things that plague people in our society, our neighbors, uh, to a very great degree. Even though I believe that the term is often overused, we still use the terms that we know what we're talking about, which is depression and anxiety. We use those two terms together because those events and circumstances moods, whatever you want to call it, that cause the one also cause the other. In other words, the, uh, those things that influence that kind of response are the same. Some people may suffer one or the other, either depression or anxiety, or they may suffer a combination of the two. But those things, again, plague just an enormous number of people. And again, it is not always obvious. Even when individuals are suffering from being depressed, it's not always something you can see. It is something they may often carry and conceal from others, but they are very much aware of it. It is important that we have a a better understanding of that so that we can not only better perhaps understand ourselves and how the Word of God can help us, but so that we can have a greater understanding and compassion for others. The world is in desperate need of Christ. The world often does not recognize that they are in need of Christ. It's not only that they won't admit it, they don't think that they are. They are being given solutions to some of the issues of life which may help temporarily or the world may be trying to convince them that whatever's going on with them is basically, well, don't consider anything spiritual, certainly not the God of the Bible, because that's not going to help you. That's old, that's archaic, the Bible has nothing to say to what's going on in, in your life today, so Come to us. We're the experts. We can help you. And we sometimes, as Christians, as a church, we fall into that kind of thinking and end up agreeing with the world. Now, we don't intend to do that. But what we end up saying is, is yes, the world does have the problem. This is something Christ cannot help you with. Now, we would never say it that way. But that is kind of how we live at times. That is sometimes the more accurate way to describe our approach to life. And so it's important for us to kind of pause for a moment and once again examine those things in great detail that trouble us and trouble others very deeply. Understand those things that influence people who become maybe very anxious in the way they live or perhaps depressed or deeply saddened. So that we then know how to explain the gospel. Maybe better understand it ourselves as to how the gospel really helps us with these things. Because we too often think that when it comes to being anxious or being depressed, that the person's problem is, is that they are depressed. That isn't the problem. That's the symptom. What is it that is causing those things? That's what the gospel addresses. And if the gospel addresses those things, then with those things being addressed... They are no longer there affecting the individual in the same way. They will have a different approach, a different understanding, and therefore a different way of feeling, and a different way of living their life. So when it comes to those things, we have talked about three things so far that individuals who suffer from depression or anxiety, uh, and again, this is not something that maybe necessarily happened last week, Thursday, 
Right? This is usually those things that have been accumulating along the way and affect us in this way. Individuals are disconnected from meaningful work. They are disconnected from other people. And they are disconnected from meaningful values. And so we went into great detail on those things. So today and, and next week, most likely, what I want to look at is uh, that individuals are disconnected due to childhood trauma and want to uh, make sure we come to a good understanding of that. Again, remember that depression is not a disease. Depression is often a normal response to abnormal experiences. Proverbs 18.14 reads, A man's spirit sustains him in sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear? And that is what takes place for many who have experienced childhood trauma. Now, I, I used to use the word childhood trauma because that is a very broad term. We're not necessarily dealing with only one aspect of it. Because when we think of childhood trauma, we normally think of only one or two things. We think of the individual who perhaps was physically abused continuously, uh, whether it is in a violent way or in a sexual way. And we think of that that's what we mean by childhood trauma, and that's maybe the only thing. And so therefore, I haven't suffered that, my friends haven't suffered that, so that's not an issue in their life. But it may be an issue in their life, because they have experienced that, but not in that way. Again, uh, if you paraphrase what I read in verse 14 of Proverbs 18, it reads this way, A man's spirit can endure sickness, but... Who can survive a broken spirit? And so there are individuals, maybe many, who are seeking to eke, to eke out an existence, and they have a broken spirit. Remember that, again, as believers, we think and we will hear many declare, well, Christ is the answer, and he is. We must have a good understanding of what the issues are so we can explain how Christ is the answer. Because if we can't explain how Christ is the answer, it's almost as if we're saying that Christ can magically heal your life. And we're not talking about magic. God does have the power to heal immediately. Oftentimes, he doesn't do that. How do you explain to an individual how it is that God can deal and help heal them with the issues that they're going through or the issues that they're feeling. That's what we need to be able to explain. Because if we can't explain it, then we almost end up saying, well, I don't know how Christ can do it, but he's magic. And if you believe in him, everything would be great. And that's just not a true statement. It's not a true statement at all. Again, Ecclesiastes points out the heavy burdens that weigh us down on a daily basis. Again, it is important that we understand how man responds to these things, how we handle them, especially both unbelievers and believers who do not understand how or simply do not depend upon the Lord. Again, our goal is not only to understand ourselves better, but to understand others. This understanding should increase, I believe, our compassion for others. Often the reason we don't share the gospel is because we care very little for others. At times we care very little because we do not empathize with them. Understanding can change that. It can change our sentiment towards others. And even at times, it can change our attitude towards others immediately. There was a man that was once in the dorm that I was, you know, when I was a chaplain at the jail, um, I had a discipleship dorm. And every Friday in that dorm, all the men would form a big circle with their chairs, about between 50 and 60 of them. And we would discuss whatever they wanted to discuss. 
nothing was off limits except for their case. I wasn't a lawyer, and neither are, and they're not lawyers either. So we discussed a wide variety of things. Well, on this particular week, on a Wednesday, we had a new inmate that was placed in our dorm. This inmate's placement in our dorm immediately stirred up some, some trouble. Because when you spoke to him, when he spoke back, he yelled at you. I mean, we're talking screaming. He did that with everyone. He'd scream at the officers. He screamed at his roommate. Guys tried to be patient. It was the chaplain's dorm, by the way. They didn't want to get rid of it, get moved out, but this was becoming kind of unnerving. And so by Friday morning, I had discovered that there were some inmates who knew that they were going to be put in isolation, but they were willing to do that, but they were going to teach this guy a lesson. And normally in the jail, that only means one thing. They're going to beat him up because they're just sick and tired of it. Well, on that Friday, just before we put all the chairs in a circle, another inmate was placed into our dorm, a new guy. And so uh, when we got in the circle and, and you know, we began to have a discussion and talk about different things, uh, after about maybe 30 minutes, he stood up, which was very unusual for an inmate who had been placed in there that day to participate verbally in this circle. And so, the very, so he introduced himself, and he says, I know that many of you have met my friend. And, he, and I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy, the yeller, he pointed to him. He said, I know that you know him. He said, I also know that some of you probably want to smack him. There was this awkward silence. Like, how did this guy know? But he did say he was his friend. He has to know. And then he told us a story. This man, like many of them, had come from a single-parent home raised by his mom. Like many of them, his mom had had several different boyfriends. Some of them were good, some of them were abusive, but there was a string of them. When he was 14 years old, he came day, came home that day and found his mom's current boyfriend beating her up. He then grabbed the baseball bat to try to get this guy off of his mom. He swung, the guy turned around, caught the bat, flipped it around, and hit him in the head. Almost killed him. He was in the hospital for several weeks. Everything was fine except for one thing. Whenever he spoke, he yelled. They didn't know why. They knew it had something to do with a brain injury. At that moment, all of the inmates that had wanted to beat him up changed. The attitude was completely different. They now understood why he was that way, why he was yelling, immediately could empathize with his situation, and their anger was instantly gone. That's what information can do for us. And so, not only did they not beat him up, thank goodness, but they even began to joke with him. And sometimes would yell and scream at him. It was just, it was bizarre for a, a couple months in the dorm with his individual. And can be very unnerving when they ask you a Bible question when they're screaming. But we learned to get along. But what we're going to be doing today, and this is kind of the format so you can understand what's taking place. Francis Schaeffer was once asked that if he met a man and he, only, and he knew that he only had 60 minutes, only one hour with that man, and that would be the only opportunity that man would have to hear the gospel, how would he, Francis Schaeffer, handle that? How would he approach that? 
And he said that what he would do is he would spend the first 50 minutes convincing that man that he was a sinner, helping him to understand what sin really was. So he could clearly identify that he was in desperate need of a savior. And then the last 10 minutes, share the gospel. So what we're going to do this morning is to spend some time really trying to understand all of these things that we often hear about in our society, in our culture, so we then can address it with the gospel of Jesus Christ and do so successfully. Let me share this with you. There was a study that was done once with 187 patients. All these patients were individuals who were obese. And uh, these 187 patients, it was a special study where uh, they were going to try a new kind of, uh, it really wasn't a diet because they, they weren't going to eat. It was no food. Uh, the researchers had already done some research and were trying to figure out, so when people stop eating, what is it they need, obviously, besides food? What kind of, what, what would cause their death? And so they began to list some things, certain nutrients that they would need to be able to survive not eating because they were all obese. They should have enough fat on them that they would not die. And so they, they realized they needed some, you know, vitamin D and zinc and they went through all these things. And so they, they had a, a, a liquid form of, of all these supplements and that's all they received was just that. And they went for over a month. I think some of them went two months without eating a thing. And they were fine. They all lost weight. They all lost a significant amount of weight. And they were still healthy. Shortly after the study was done, a very large number of them gained their weight back rather rapidly. Some of them gained <laughs> the weight back after a few weeks. Some who seemed to keep the weight off for a while were back, were back to uh, the weight they were before, some were heavier. And the researchers trying to figure out, now, why, why is this happening? Because all these individuals were very pleased with their weight loss. They all understood exactly what they needed to do to keep the weight off. And yet, these individuals, this is not where they went back to what we might call healthy normal eating and gain weight. No, they went back to excessively eating, almost as if they were trying to gain the weight back on purpose. And so this one guy who was doing some thinking about this and some studying then discovered this. Of that 187 people, 55% of them had been sexually abused when they were children. And they found comfort in their size. They found safety in their size. And so as he began to do some research, began to look at lots of different issues, but primarily the whole thing with weight and eating and whatnot, and say, so why is it that nobody, if you don't address what's going on in the mind, if you don't deal with these emotions, it doesn't matter what they do physically. They're never going to lose the weight and keep it off. And they're going to be unhealthy. Now, obviously, they're not saying every single person who's overweight has the problem, because that's not what they said. They, they found that was 55%, which is a very huge number uh, of any group to have the same thing that's gone in their life that may cause them to find comfort in, in the size that they are. So again, we have people, we have friends that we know that deal with the issues of their past in all kinds of ways. People sometimes do it with food, some with their weight, some with the amount of, time or amount of hours they spend at work, others with the other types of, of hobbies or issues that they have going on. They, they try to find ways to deal with whatever's going on in the past. There's no healing, but just trying to find a way to deal with and, and get on to the next day. 
And we need to understand that. It needs to be clear to us. Here is the thing. Many find comfort in the limited idea that the reason that they are depressed and anxious is they have a serotonin imbalance or a dopamine imbalance or what have you. It's true that something is happening in your brain when you become depressed, but that is not a causal explanation. Some people don't want to see this because at least at first it seems to be much more comforting to think it's all happening simply because of changes in the brain. It takes away an experiential process and substitutes a a mechanistic process. It turns your pain into a trick of the light that can be banished with drugs. But they don't ultimately solve the problem any more than just getting the obese patients to stop eating solve their problems. Why do some people, maybe many, not want to see this? In other words, that the problem they're having with anxiety is not something that's just wrong with the brain. That, that there's, there's reasons why they're that way. Why do they not want to deal with those things? One man has said this. You see, if you believe that your depression is due solely to a broken brain, you don't have to think about your life or about what anyone might have done to you. The belief that it all comes down to biology protects you in a way for a while. If you absorb this, though, you have to think about those things, and that hurts. Let me explain. If I saw an adult strangling a child with an electrical cord, it would not even occur to me to blame the child. And if somebody suggested such a thing, I would assume that they were insane. However, for many who have suffered violence at the hand of another, feel like they are betraying the one who hurt them. Their father, stepmother, mother, uncle, boyfriend, etc. Even though they know who has betrayed them, they still feel like they are the one who is doing the wrong. It's quite difficult to explain that. I don't think we really have to explain it in the sense of being able to comprehend it. That's just what happens. Why do so many people who experience violence in childhood feel this way? And then why does it lead them to many... Uh, uh, lead them, many anyway, to do self-destructive or end self-destructive behavior, like obesity, hardcore addiction, or suicide. Another one has said, it may be because that when you are a child, you have very little power to change your environment. And so you have two choices. You can admit to yourself that you are powerless, there's nothing you can do about it. Or you can tell yourself it's your fault. If you do that, you actually gain some power, at least in your own mind. It's your fault then. There's something you can do that might make it different. But that comes at a cost. If you are responsible for being hurt, then at some level, you have to think you deserved it. Now let's ratchet it down a bit. What I mean by that is, even though we often think of those who suffer violence at the hands of another and they have trauma in their childhood, again, not everyone experiences that. You may have many friends who've had trauma in their childhood, but they, but they weren't beaten. They weren't strangled with an electrical cord. So let's keep in mind that, there are, again, there are many different causes for someone's depression or anxiety. There's social or environmental factors, biological factors, psychological factors. Childhood trauma is psychological, and the ways our psyches can be damaged is almost endless. You may even know someone whose spouse cheated on them with their best friend for years when they found out that they were deeply depressed. Someone may survive a terror attack and be anxious 10 years later. Another may have had a mother who was competent in every way, never cruel, yet was relentlessly negative and taught them to always see the worst in people and to keep them at a distance. You see, we can't squeeze all these experiences in the neat categories. It really wouldn't make sense to say adultery or cold parents causes depression or anxiety. But here's what we know. 
Psychological damage does not have to be as extreme as childhood violence to affect you profoundly. Remember that we've mentioned this many times before. Sin has broken man in many different ways. And again, Christ really is the answer. Your spouse cheating on you with your best friend is not a malfunction of your brain. But it is the cause of deep psychological distress. We sometimes might feel like the person in the eerie classic television show, The Twilight Zone, where the characters themselves are caught in the zone and want nothing more than to return to just normal life. Similarly, survivors of severe trauma fall into the trauma zone, a place that they want to escape, but they can't. Some cannot move forward. Some are feeling stuck and victimized by their past. Some cannot see the present, living in denial of what has happened. And others cannot learn from the past, repeating the same mistakes over and over. All of them find they can't cope with the overwhelming emotions that accompany trauma. Trauma is a certain kind of suffering, the kind that overwhelms one's ability to cope. A whole class of wounds that cripple, a wound that buries itself deep into our consciousness, a tragedy that is too heavy for us. It happens uh, in the past, but it asserts itself over and over in the present. Due to the past, one may experience or get engaged in these kinds of behaviors. They may engage in premarital sex, or as some might say in the world, sex too early. They may be involved or experience premature death. They have a familiarity with violence. They have a familiarity with betrayal or maybe prolonged neglect. All kinds of violation, physical violation, etc., becomes kind of normal for them. Abuse, whether it's dished out or received, is excused, and pain is pervasive. So how do we faithfully navigate the overwhelming wounds and the unpredictable triggers as believers? It's the gospel. It really is. That is not a simplistic answer. It's simple in that we can focus in on it very easily, but it is not simplistic. Remember that the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come in the world, lived among us as us, experiencing pain, temptation, sin. Not that he sinned, but he experienced the effects of sin. And that he was actually punished for our sin. Man's problems, the issues that we face, all come from sin. We die because of sin. We have disease because of sin. We do wrong because of sin. Others do wrong to us because of sin. We need doctors because of sin. There are storms because of sin. Sin is the problem. That is not overly simplistic. It's just simply the truth. Christ has dealt with the sin through the cross. We experience, on an individual level, redemption now for those of us who place our faith in Christ. There is a healing of our soul that is immediate. We still die. We still get sick. We still suffer at the hands of others who are in sin. We still sin ourselves. We all look forward to the day when when the day of redemption comes, when our redemption is complete, when Christ returns. Because he's dealt with sin, he then returns and he will establish his kingdom. When he returns, there will be this eternal order after that where sin has then been eradicated because of what Christ has done on the cross. And so that really is the answer. When it comes to everyday living here and now, Christ does bring healing. At times, the healing can be immediate. We know that we are restored immediately into fellowship with God. We are immediately adopted into the family. I now belong to Christ. We now belong to him as believers and belong to each other. 
Many of our needs are met immediately by other believers. God, through others, meets our needs. And it's a great, wonderful thing, and we continue to grow into mature as believers in our understanding of that and living in that. But along the way, though, when it comes to this issue of trauma, some Christians have been trained to think that proper believers will not continue to experience traumatic symptoms for the rest of their lives because of Christ's liberating work. That is untrue. We may still, many of us do, will still suffer the consequences of all the things that have happened to us before. We now have a way to deal with that. We now have a way to understand that. We now have a source of comfort that defies human explanation. It's not magical. It is in the person of Christ. It is in the Spirit of God that indwells us. So this idea that when an individual becomes a believer, and if they are a proper believer, then they will suffer in no way from the consequences of their trauma from the past is simply not true. But they also don't have to wallow in it either. On the other hand, for some... Hope and freedom are withheld by well-meaning Christian counselors who insist on our need to process, the need to focus excessively or exclusively on our trauma, the need to speak at length about the pain, the need to obsess over it, the need to become preoccupied with our wounds, the notion that only in giving ourselves over to our trauma can we be free from it. That's what some in the world say. The problem is is that's also what some in the Christian community say. That is not the answer either. One of those is a cruel optimism in stating that you will never suffer again the consequences of your past as a believer. And the other is an incurable diagnosis because you will never be able to obsess about your past pain enough and therefore it will never heal. Both are wrong. In some ways, they're both kind of accurate, but they're totally false. So how do we know what to believe about ourselves and about God? It's like we're walking in between these two deep pits, two wrongly exclusive claims. Again, number one, the teaching that Christ insists on a certain kind and pace of recovery for the wounded. Some seem to get over things quickly. Some seems to take a while. Or maybe it's insisting that lifelong psychological trauma is so much a human experience that God cannot help much. And I've shared with you before my belief that in the 70s, as secular psychology began to make its inroads into the church and into theology, that there began to be this unspoken attitude, an unspoken refrain that I've actually heard some individuals say, and that is this. Well, yes, Christ heals, and and Christ will make you whole as far as he can. That there are certain things that Christ really doesn't touch in this life. That we we should pray for it and and God will do whatever he can for us spiritually. But somehow when it comes to emotional issues and other issues that there's only so much that Christ can really do. Because the Bible doesn't really address that. Even though the Bible addresses that immensely and very deeply. And so we need to remember that the gospel again is not simplistic. It's very deep. And it can and brings restoration and healing. In some cases, very quickly. In other cases, it takes a while. But all have true, genuine hope in Christ. He understands. He heals. He knows what he's doing. There are countless stories of churches that whitewash traumatic experiences and ongoing distress with a reductionist form of redemptive strategies. 
where they are undercutting and offending the, legit the legitimacy and the necessity of true lament, where we do need to express grief and sorrow over some of the horrendous things that have happened in the lives of other individuals. As believers, we should be the most compassionate when it comes to those things. We should have understanding. But it's an understanding and a compassion, I believe, that comes with great strength. Because it's never a, a grieving that we grieve with the individual where we're grieving together in hopelessness. There is hope. It can recover. Absolutely they can recover. And they can be healed. There are countless other stories of parents' uh, relationships with their children being utterly destroyed. Not to mention seeming relationships with God destroyed because a counselor has overly fixated on the trauma. For these reasons, the term trauma is heard both too little and maybe too often today. Too little in addressing the profound wreckage of abuse and too often as the controlling and decisive narrative in our story. If you are not familiar with abuse stories, I just want you to understand that it's much more pervasive than you could ever imagine. It's not here and there, and we can see the stories on 48 Hours in 2020, and we say, oh, how sad. There are neighborhoods where house after house after house after house has stories that can be told of the kinds of things that go on. It's not an exaggeration when we talk about the immensity of the abuse that takes place. But again, we don't have to be afraid of that. Sometimes those who are conservative are afraid that everyone's going to become a bleeding heart liberal. And we're going to be throwing away money to help people who are either exaggerating their problems or we're not going to be able to really help the issue at all. Well, you don't have to be a bleeding heart liberal to be compassionate. You can be conservative and be compassionate, absolutely. But we want to make sure that we're going to be able to offer very real help in helping others. That does sometimes take money. But we need to remember that the ultimate message is the message of Christ. And again, it's not that we're offering nothing. The world views that as nothing because they don't understand. So there's three important questions. How can we speak of Christ without overpromising that all will be well? Because that's a mistake that some make. I've heard individuals, volunteers would come to the jail to teach Bible studies or what have you. And they would, they would be sincere and they would tell the men, because it's mostly men that are in there, if you just come to Christ... He can fix everything. It's not a good thing to say. Because how they understand that and how you mean it may be completely that. Because what they're thinking about is, I'm in trouble, I'm in jail, I come to Christ, he fixes everything, that means I get a good lawyer and I get out of here. That's what they think it means. And maybe the lead witness suddenly dies of a heart attack. And so what happens is we end up making promises to individuals. Sometimes in our desire to help individuals who may be hurting, you may even tell a friend. You may say, look, I don't know much, but I know if you come to Christ, he'll make everything better. There's another way to say that, because that's not a good way to say that. Because that individual may think that what you're saying is, is they believe in Christ, that tomorrow everything will be perfect. They will have no pain. They may not even remember what's happened in the past. And they'll be maybe like you or better. And when they wake up the next morning and the pain is still there, they don't know if you've lied to them or perhaps God isn't really capable of such things anyway. 
How can we name trauma without excusing someone entirely for awful patterns of sin, sinful and sinful and destructive symptoms? The case here is where an individual, let's say maybe they have learned more details or they are just all the time aware of what's happened to them as kids and that then becomes the excuse for what they do. And you say to, the, say to an individual, oh, man, dude, why are you just, you're so unfaithful to your wife. Why are you living like that? I just can't help myself. You know, I, I, was, I was traumatized as a kid. I don't really care that you're traumatized as a kid in that sense. That's not why you're being unfaithful. So what happens is, is we begin to allow that to be used as the excuse for all kinds of things. So we want to make sure we don't go there either. How can we address trauma with clarity, love, and honesty without letting it control or consume us? Well, there are several things that we need to remember. And of those several things, we're only going to cover one. <laughs> Number one, that is this. God remembers the evil that caused our traumas. God will not forget the life of our lost loved one, the transgression of our abuser, the brutal pain of violence, the shock and the awe of loss, the aching regret over wounds for which we are responsible. One day he will bring all of it into light with crystal clarity and perfect justice. Genuine trauma is, is done, uh, has done a disservice when the wound is hidden. Satan wants you to hide and deceive. God wants you to come to him with every honest, painful detail. Trauma is mitigated, first by, uh, of all, by calling that which it is. It is evil. And that which it is, it is devastating trauma. Its effects are only able to be survived and minimized when the whole tragedy has first come into view. The past will not be whitewashed for the sake of protecting the privileged. The men or women, the powerful, the institutional leaders, all those who abuse power for their own personal gain, all the evil acts will be properly labeled as evil and remembered as, they, as the perpetuation of trauma. Romans 12, beginning in verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, then you feed him. If he is thirsty, you give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then the book of Nahum, which we often don't read. Chapter 1, verse 3, the very first part of verse 3, reads this way. The Lord is slow to anger, but he is great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. Now remember for us as believers, you and I are guilty of much. He will never leave the guilty unpunished. We gather here together to praise the Lord because my guilt has been punished in Christ. Remember, when we view salvation, it is never that because we now love Christ, God overlooks our sin. It is not that. It is not that now because we love Christ, God pretends we haven't sinned. Or that our sin isn't horrific it is all of those things the reason why we can proclaim that we are saved is because god has punished all of the nastiness of your sin in christ he punished christ as if he had committed all the things that you and i have done not done and thought about and so the guilty has been punished for me it was the substitute and i thank god for that when it comes to those who are unbelievers, the guilty 
will never escape punishment. There is great comfort in that. We all have a sense of justice. That if justice is not reached, it can make, for those who have experienced pain, experience pain at an even deeper level. It makes it worse for them. That's why we talk about individuals having a sense of closure when those who are guilty are arrested and convicted and sentenced. Whatever the sentence may be. That's a very real thing. And so what we need to remember when it comes to addressing these issues, whether the individual you're speaking to is one who has traumatized others or has been the victim themselves, that God knows what you've experienced. God has experienced through Christ. When Christ came to earth, he has experienced great suffering at the hands of others. And he knew exactly what he was doing when he took on our sin and was punished for our sin. He knows exactly what that individual is going through. He identified with that. And that individual can find forgiveness for their sin through Christ. Just because they've been traumatized doesn't mean they've not sinned and have done nothing wrong, because they have. There's very real comfort. But you cannot receive the comfort of God until you deal with your sin issue first. It's the reality of life. No one is innocent. That is not a cruel or a mean thing to say. It is the truth. Let me end with a, with a very, what I believe is a very powerful story. It took place in Oahu. This was back in the 70s when this took place. My father um, pastored a church, and he was also very heavily involved in jail ministry. And my father had developed uh, on his own a, uh, a class, and he would go to the prison, and he would work with men who were there for uh, sexual abuse. And on the big island where I was, when I became a full-time jail chaplain, I met an individual who uh, had sexually abused his two nieces. And he ended up becoming a Christian. And like it is with many individuals who abuse children sexually, it's very difficult to tell when they, when, if that individual is genuinely repentant of what they've done. It's very hard to tell. In fact, I, I don't even try to figure it out. You just have to watch their life and see how it goes for a long time because they... It's, you just, they're so adept at lying and being deceitful. It's just, it's just unbelievable. Well, this man, uh, I told him about my father and told him about the, the program that my father uh, was doing on the other island in the prison. Well, what was making this, this case interesting is this man, the judge on the big island, was a relative of his. He'd been worked out with his lawyer and with this judge that he would, I forget what the plea was going to be. It wasn't, it wasn't guilty. It was uh, um, some kind, maybe it was no contest. But whatever it was, it was going to work out that he was going to only be given probation, which is a great tragedy. And we had discussed in great detail all of my views and what I thought the Bible said about these things. And the day came when he had to go to court. There was no trial because he was just entering this plea. When he arrived at court and his case was up, he informed the judge that he wanted to change his plea. The judge was very confused because everything had been arranged. He said, what are you talking about? He said, I need to change my plea. He said, why? He said, I've become a Christian. I have to be honest. He said, I'm changing my plea to guilty to all the charges. The judge looked at him and said, you do know that if you do that, I have to sentence you to 10 years minimum in prison. And he said, 
Yeah, I know that. And I, and I need that because I've done wrong. He says, but I'm, my, I have a request. Can you send me to Halava prison? Because that's where my chaplain's dad is, and I want to be in that program. And the judge said, fine. Slam the mallet. They accepted the guilty plea. He says, if there's no objection, we'll do this sentencing right now. Because normally they, they don't do that. And they said, he said, absolutely. So the lawyer, trying to clear his name, uh, can the record show that I've advised my uh, client not to do this? You know, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, so he slammed the mallet, and he sentenced him to a 10-year minimum, and then arranged it for him to go to Halava prison. That's where he went. And into my dad's program. Sometimes when stories like this go, what you end up hearing is how the individual did just a short period of time and they got out and their life is wonderful. He did all 10 years. And he got out. Of all the men that I have dealt with that are involved with uh, sexually abusing children, I would invite him to my home and I'd leave him alone with my kids and I wouldn't worry about it. It's a rare thing. Very rare. He understood the trauma he had caused to others. He understood that his sin was inexcusable. He himself had been abused when he was young by a couple of his uncles. Never used that as an excuse, at least after he got saved. He didn't. His life was transformed. The gospel is the answer. It brings about justice. It brings about healing. We never have to back down from sharing the gospel or declaring the gospel is the answer. There is both great love, compassion, and strength and justice in the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the strength and the truth and the effect of the gospel of Christ. Lord, we gather here, for those of us who are believers, as those who have been adopted by you because we believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, and in the atonement. And we have experienced, Father, the forgiveness of sin and oftentimes have experienced the comfort that goes along with that. For those fathers who may, still, father who may still be suffering from maybe the effects of their own childhood and trauma they've experienced, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to understand that healing can be found in you. And that they would turn to you. And they would seek you. And they would seek you both for your compassion and the strength that you'll give them. Father, for those who may be here this morning who do not know Christ, whether they have experienced trauma or not, I pray, Lord, you help them to realize and come to the understanding that they are separated from you. And that is a serious position to be in. And that they are, at this moment, condemned to hell. And they are condemned to hell every, with every breath they take until they submit themselves to you. And we pray that in your kindness and in your strength that you would draw them to yourself, reveal to them their need of you, and I pray that whether it's today or maybe another day, that at least they will begin to seek out to understand what the gospel is and why it would make such a difference and how it is that it is so true. And Father, we will rejoice with the angels of heaven over each one who comes to know Christ. So Father, now we ask that you would close us with your blessing and you would continue to impress these truths deep into our hearts. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.